Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death and the sexual assault of minors. Consider this when deciding how and where you'll listen. Today's cases are open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. Unless you live nearby, there's no real reason for you to know Highway 16, but you've probably heard its nickname, the Highway of Tears. That's because at least 18 women and girls, mostly from First Nation reserves, have gone missing there. And by some counts, the real number is more than double that. Their cases have been the subject of countless books, articles, documentaries, and podcasts for years. But the disappearances continue. I'm talking decades of people going missing, ever since the late 60s. And like anything that gains notoriety, and then keeps on doing the thing it gained notoriety for, I have to ask a question. How can a stretch of road receive a nickname like the Highway of Tears without authorities working like hell to change it? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. This is my first episode of May, which is also Missing an Unidentified Person's Awareness Month. It's a time when these stories get more coverage than they usually do. Maybe you're even tuning in because of it. And if you are, I'm glad you're here. For information on Missing an Unidentified Person's Month and to find out ways to help, please visit spotify.com disappearances. With that in mind, I want to use this first episode to highlight an epidemic I deeply care about. It's one I've talked about before, which is the notoriously high rate of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. In the U.S., Indigenous women living on reservations face murder rates of about 10 times the national average. And in Canada, where the Highway of Tears is, a 2019 report found that Indigenous women and girls are, quote, 12 times more likely to be murdered or to go missing than members of any other demographic. Indigenous activists and their allies have rallied to have May 5th, the day after this episode airs, declared a holiday. In the US, it's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Awareness Day. And in Canada, the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. So in honor and support of that, I'll be covering the disappearances of three indigenous women along the Highway of Tears. I wanna help spread awareness and get the word out there. Their names are Delphine Nicole, Cecilia Nicole, and Ramona Wilson. All three of them went missing from the same area just a few years apart. I don't know if they all disappeared for the same reason, but they're forever linked to a crisis that's been unfolding for generations. One that must end. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Highway 16 cuts through 450 miles of northern British Columbia. It weaves its way through giant pine forests and villages so remote, you could drive for 15 minutes without seeing another car. Girls and women started disappearing along the highway in 1969. Either that, or it's just when authorities began keeping track. People likely started going missing long before then, and it's still happening. Like I said, I'm covering three of the stories just to give you an idea of how and why this trend persists. But first, I want to go ahead and acknowledge that the bulk of this information comes from journalist Jessica McDermott's book, Highway of Tears. I highly suggest reading it. She's done a ton of research and interviews and is a big part of the reason we're able to tell these girls' stories today. That said, let's start with Delphine Nicole a girl who went missing in 1990, several years before the Highway of Tears got its official nickname. In May 1990, Delphine is 15 years old. She lives about halfway down Highway 16 in the tiny village of Telqua. It sits on land that was historically home to the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Delphine's mom is a member. The area is beautiful. It's surrounded by evergreens and mountains that stay snow-capped well into the summer months. But Delphine's life isn't easy. She just got out of a juvenile rehabilitation facility, which is more like a jail for children as young as 12. She was incarcerated at 14 for, quote, theft, mischief, break and enter, and failure to comply. Now, I don't know what Delphine did to get these charges. But in 1990, childhood incarceration is fairly common in Canada, and Indigenous youth like Delphine are always overrepresented in these so-called rehab centers. Delphine spent hours writing long, heartfelt letters to her mom and sisters about how much she missed them. She's the baby of the family, and her sisters helped raise her. But by the time Delphine's released, her sisters don't live at home anymore. It's just Delphine, her mom, and her stepdad. Delphine doesn't really get along with him, so she spends a lot of time out of the house hanging out with friends. She stopped going to school. Her goal is to get her own place so she can move out when she turns 16. Then in June, 1990, her mom, Judy, finds out she needs to travel to a hospital about 250 miles away for surgery. And due to some complications, she ends up being hospitalized for four months. 
Delphine hitchhikes back and forth a few times to visit her mom, but for the most part, she ends up staying with an uncle who lives right across the street from their house. Her stepdad is spending most of his time at the hospital, so they probably don't want her alone at night. Around 2 p.m. on Wednesday, June 13th, Delphine tells her uncle she's headed into town to see some friends. By town, she means Smithers, which is about 10 miles away. She meets up with her best friend, Crystal, and two other girls, and they do the usual, loiter around Main Street and pop in and out of stores. When the sun starts to set, they head back to the Mohawk gas station at the corner of Main and Highway 16. It's a good place to buy snacks, use a payphone, or hitch a ride. Delphine invites her friends to hang out at her parents' house later since they're still out of town. Apparently, this is unusual. Delphine's never really invited them over before, but it doesn't happen. It's a weekday, and her friends either have school or work early in the morning, so they part ways. The other girls head home, and Delphine calls her uncle to say she's on her way home. Then she walks out to the side of the road with her thumb in the air. I've mentioned hitchhiking a few times now, and that's because in many of these small communities along Highway 16, it's a very common and sometimes the only way for people to get around. The rate of people living below the poverty line is high. Not everyone can afford to buy or maintain vehicles, but at the same time, there aren't a lot of jobs in the area. So lots of people need to travel out of town to find work, which creates a catch-22 situation. You need a car to make money, but you need money to get a car. As for public transportation, it's basically non-existent. Greyhound buses stop in some cities, but the schedules are inconvenient and tickets aren't cheap. So hitchhiking is very normal. People thumb rides for everything, going to work, buying groceries, visiting family and friends. Delphine's done it a hundred times before, only this time, she doesn't make it home. She's supposed to meet up with Crystal the next day, but she never shows up. Crystal gets worried and reaches out to Delphine's family, and immediately her uncle and older sisters jump into action. They file a missing person report right away. They know how important it is to act fast. Their family went through this nine months ago when Delphine's cousin disappeared. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back to August 1989, less than a year before Delphine Nicole's disappearance. 
Her 18-year-old cousin, Cecilia Nicole, boards a bus from Smithers, the same town where Delphine was last seen, all the way to Vancouver, which is 700 miles away. She's going to visit her biological mom, but we don't know if she ever makes it. All we know is that a couple days later, Cecilia calls her foster mom to say she'll be back home in a few weeks, but she never returns. According to some sources, Cecilia was last sighted on Highway 16 near Smithers. She was riding on a motorcycle with an unidentified man. I honestly don't know how to square that information with other accounts that say she did, in fact, board the bus to Vancouver and arrive there. The discrepancies are part of an overall larger problem in Cecilia's case. Nobody seems to know what's going on, not even the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, otherwise known as the RCMP. The RCMP opened an investigation and questioned Cecilia's family and friends. At one point, they interview her cousin, Delphine's sister, whose full name is Roberta Cecilia Nicole. Apparently, Roberta's not happy to be talking to the police. She's had bad experiences with them in the past and doesn't know anything about her cousin's whereabouts. So she tells them not to contact her anymore. But because of the similarities in their names, Cecilia Nicole, who's missing, and Roberta Cecilia Nicole, the officers get the cousins confused. They get it in their heads that they were interviewing the girl they were looking for, and they tell Cecilia's family that they've tracked her down and that she doesn't want to be contacted, when in reality, they'd never spoken to her at all. It's a total mess. The RCMP never finds Cecilia, and her family is left without answers just a nagging sense that the investigation was mishandled from the start. When Delphine disappears, the nightmare starts all over again. Just like with Cecilia, the RCMP doesn't seem concerned about finding Delphine. They tell her family she probably ran off for a while and will be back soon. Normally, in a best case scenario, this would be the point in the story where the missing person's parents take the reins. But in Delphine's case, her mom is stuck in a hospital hundreds of miles away. So much of the responsibility falls on her sisters and her best friend, Crystal, who I should mention is 12 years old. Crystal and Delphine's sisters hear some rumors that Delphine ran away to a town called Grand Isle, over 90 miles away. They drive all the way there to look for her. Supposedly, they knock on every door in town, but no one's seen Delphine or probably even heard of her. Her disappearance isn't making headlines. It hasn't even been mentioned in the local paper. Crystal and Delphine's sisters need to get the word out somehow, or nobody will even know to keep an eye out for her. They take a photo of Delphine to a print shop, hoping to have some missing person posters made, but they're told it'll be $300. They don't have the resources to pay for that, and when they try to raise funds, it doesn't work. Four months pass before Delphine finally gets a mention in a paper called the Interior News. The RCMP is quoted in the article, asking for information about Delphine and saying they're expanding their search for her, which might come as news to Delphine's family and friends, who felt like the RCMP hasn't been searching at all. But the article goes on to say that while police are looking for her, they're really not even considering foul play right now. That's how sure they are that she's just run off they literally aren't looking into any other alternative. For Delphine's loved ones, it's infuriating, heartbreaking. They know Delphine wouldn't just take off like that, but they're not sure where else to turn. 
Who do you ask for help to find your missing child when the police won't listen? And you yourself are fighting to stay alive. It takes two years for Delphine's mom, Judy, to find an answer to that question. After she leaves the hospital and returns to Telqua, she's determined to find her daughter. In June, 1992, she learns about the Missing Children's Society of Canada. They do a lot to support missing kids and their families. In Delphine's case, the society connects her with a man named Fred Miley. He's a former RCMP officer who now works as a private detective. He travels to Telqua and starts investigating Delphine's case in April, 1993, about three years after her disappearance. Through that process, he learns about Cecilia and decides to take on her case too. Right away, Fred thinks it's highly unlikely Delphine ran away. She hasn't contacted anyone in her family, been seen by any friends, and there's no reports of her visiting any youth shelters. Instead, he thinks foul play is the most likely explanation. Delphine was hitchhiking the night she disappeared. Whoever picked her up is the most obvious suspect, but he knows finding that person is going to be extremely difficult. Fred conducts interviews, puts out feelers, and receives plenty of tips, most of which can be ruled out easily, but two are open-ended. The first comes to Fred from a person who says they were driving down Highway 16 shortly after Delphine disappeared when they saw a bloody shoe on the side of the road. They were about halfway between Smithers, the town where Delphine went missing, and Prince George, a city closer inland. Obviously, this seems like a very solid lead, so Fred brings cadaver dogs to the area to investigate. Why didn't the RCMP look into this? We don't know. But when Fred gets there, the place has been dug up by construction crews. They're in the middle of widening the highway. Fred figures if there had been anything significant in the area, like clothing or even a body, the construction workers probably would have found it. But Delphine's family can't help but wonder if that bloody shoe might've been hers or if there's any other evidence that may have been buried. The other big tip comes from a secondhand source, a woman who says she spoke to an employee at the Mohawk gas station about Delphine. The employee allegedly saw her get into a car the night she disappeared, some kind of red sports car. Now, this tip is tricky. It doesn't come from the employee themselves, and they've never been identified, but it shouldn't be discounted. If Delphine did get into a red sports car, that could give authorities their best lead yet. So Fred passes the information along to the police, hoping they can do something with it. But he never hears back. We have no idea if the RCMP followed up on the information. By 1994, it's been four years since Delphine's disappearance and five since Cecilia's. Their families have nothing concrete to go on. Fred Miley's investigation is stalled. Now, the case is still technically being investigated by the RCMP, but they haven't changed their runaway theory about Delphine, and they basically have nothing to say about Cecilia. To add insult to injury, neither of their cases make the news. It feels like no one cares or is in their corner. That is, until another girl from Smithers goes missing. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. 
Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's June 1994, and Ramona Wilson is 16 years old. She's a member of the Gixan Nation and lives with her mom and five siblings in Smithers. She's the baby of the family, the apple of her mom's eye. They're really close and sometimes stay up all night just talking. Ramona's barely old enough to drive, but she's got her whole life planned out. The graduation rate for indigenous students at her school is just 24%, and no one in her family has ever gone to college. But Ramona dreams of becoming a psychologist, and she's taking steps to make it happen, studying hard and working a part-time job at a restaurant. Saturday, June 11th is an important night. It's high school graduation for her older classmates, so there's a ton of parties around town. Ramona is meeting up with her best friend, who also happens to be named Crystal, like Delphine's best friend. They're supposed to meet each other at a dance in Hazleton about 40 miles away. It seems like the plan is for them each to hitchhike there separately. Ramona puts on her makeup and styles her hair. And around 9.30 p.m., she waves goodbye to her mom and takes off on foot. As far as we know, she walks into town and gets a ride to Hazleton from there. But she never shows up at the dance. It's not cause for immediate panic. This is the 90s, before everyone has cell phones to text each other when plans change. So Crystal figures Ramona either couldn't find a ride or decided to go somewhere else. But the next morning, Ramona's mom, best friend, and boyfriend all get in touch. Ramona's mom thought she was with Crystal, and Crystal thought Ramona may have met up with her boyfriend, but the boyfriend hasn't seen her. He thought she was either at home or with Crystal. They're hoping things will make sense and Ramona will show up with a perfectly reasonable explanation. But that doesn't happen. Ramona misses school and work the next day. And what follows comes as no surprise. Ramona's family reports her missing to the RCMP and they get a lukewarm response. Like the other cases, officers assume Ramona ran away, leaving her family and friends in the dark. But one thing is different this time around. The Missing Children's Society of Canada gets wind of Ramona's case. Representatives gather a $10,000 reward for information about her or Delphine Nicole. So Delphine is finally in the public eye, which is a good thing, but Cecilia is still being treated as an afterthought. 
and the reward money ultimately doesn't lead to any new breakthroughs. Their families try to keep hope alive, but I have to imagine that every day that passes is torture. Fast forward eight months to April 9th, 1995. Two teenagers are riding dirt bikes in a clearing near the Smithers Airport in the middle of the afternoon when they stumble on human remains. It's Ramona Wilson. The police identify her using dental records. Based on the state of her body, the RCMP believes Ramona was killed in a sexually motivated attack. They investigate, but don't catch her killer. Ramona's family is inconsolable. And for Delphine and Cecilia's loved ones, it's a horrible reminder of how high the stakes are. More than ever, they're faced with the possibility that Delphine and Cecilia might have met a similar fate. Granted, none of these families truly know what happened, but they've lost faith that law enforcement will help them find out. They're all stuck in that agonizing place where answers can both be a kindness and a cruelty. And that doesn't change for another 10 years. By this point, the Highway of Tears has started to accrue its nickname. And in 2005, the RCMP decides there are so many unsolved disappearances and murders, they need to establish a task force to look into them. It's called E-Pana. E is the name of the RCMP's British Columbia Division. And according to their website, Pana is an Inuit word describing the spirit goddess that looks after souls just before they go to heaven or are reincarnated. At first, EPANA groups together nine unsolved cases along Highway 16. Their goal is to determine if a serial killer or multiple serial killers are responsible for the deaths and disappearances. Two years later, EPANA adds nine more names to their list, bringing the missing person total to 18. The crimes date back as far as 1969 and as recently as 2006. Ramona Wilson is among them, so is Delphine Nicole. Somewhere along the way, the RCMP reconsidered their runaway theory and shifted their focus to homicide. Cecilia's case is not included. Now, I don't know why Cecilia wasn't included. Outside of the lack of help indigenous families are traditionally met with by the RCMP, it could be that she was 18 at the time and was regarded as an adult who had a right to leave her life on her own accord. But that doesn't negate the fact that she's never returned and her family is still extremely concerned. All I can say is I wish her case was and someday is treated with urgency. As of this recording, E. Panna does not believe there's a single serial killer responsible for all 18 disappearances and deaths, but they have determined 13 are homicides while the other five are missing. And so far, they've only solved one of those cases since the task force was established. For me, the most frustrating part is that EPANA isn't focused on stopping crime or protecting communities along Highway 16. It's a task force that was set up to be reactive, not preventative. It's like trying to treat the symptoms of a problem without addressing the root cause. Whereas for the Highway of Tears, prevention could mean the Canadian government offering better public transportation, so the need for hitchhiking in the area goes down. I'm admittedly a little critical of EPANA, but it has achieved something of note. Ever since the task force was established, the Highway of Tears has been in the news. You might not know every victim's story, but if you engage with true crime content often, 
you almost certainly know the highway's nickname. Which brings me back to my original question. What is being done to rectify the dangers the local community faces while traveling down this highway? And is the lack of action encouraging predators to travel to this area to look for their victims? There have been at least two male serial killers charged and convicted for murder on Highway 16. As far as I can tell, neither of these men are from the communities that they targeted. They traveled down Highway 16 on purpose looking for victims because they knew they'd be more likely to find vulnerable people there. In other words, the highway's reputation could have been what drew these predators there. And because there's this understanding that the Highway of Tears is a place where people, especially young indigenous women, go missing, I have to wonder how the RCMP can be aware of this nickname and still refuse to treat it with urgency. To me, it's almost like the RCMP is complacent that people have started to consider these crimes inevitable. In my opinion, that horror has been normalized over time due to this inaction. Now, I know this all sounds pretty bleak, but I bring it up because I think it's worth considering and because I truly believe the Highway of Tears murders are a problem that can be solved. They're the result of structural and systemic failures that can be changed. In 2006, there was a Highway of Tears Symposium, a meeting of over 500 First Nations people. Together, they outlined 33 recommendations for how to make the area safer. These include better public transportation options, more indigenous service safe homes, and public phone booths along the highway, the expansion of a rural crime watch program, and increased RCMP patrols in the area. One of their recommendations was simply that the First Nations youth who live along the Highway of Tears should be listened to, as in talking to them, asking them what they need. Obviously, 2006 is years ago. In the meantime, advocates who call themselves the Highway of Tears governing body continue to stand behind those 33 recommendations. In addition to pressuring the government to take action, they provide a community safety toolkit and they hold safety training in communities along the highway. Their website is highwayoftears.org if you'd like to learn more. So many of their recommendations feel within reach to prevent more tragedy. Now, I understand that resources are an issue, but what I don't understand is how the RCMP and Canada in general can just sit by while their citizens are being murdered and going missing along their infamous Highway of Tears. Researching these stories really got to me and the other people working on this episode. We told you this episode would span generations, but I wasn't just talking about decades of victims. Delphine Nicole's family has spoken about how when the RCMP presumed she'd been killed, they didn't just mourn her. They mourned all the children she would never have. Delphine was only 15, but she always dreamed of having a family of her own. I talk a lot about how the trauma of violence echoes, but I've never really conceptualized it in this way before, as having an impact on future possible descendants, which is something families do think about. Honestly, I don't know how much louder that echo needs to be for the RCMP to take action. In the end, these are three young women who represent so many others just like them who have gone missing whose legacies have been tied to that stretch of pavement. 
as if it was the highway that killed them, when in reality, it seems pretty clear to me that this is a cacophony of systemic failure. We can't change what's already happened, but in my opinion, there is so much more we can do going forward. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you have any information regarding the disappearances of Delphine or Cecilia Nicole, the murder of Ramona Wilson, or any of the Highway of Tears cases, please contact the Royal Canadian Mounted Police tip line at 1-877-543-4822. And if you'd like to help prevent violence along the Highway of Tears, please visit highwayoftears.org. We've also mentioned the Missing Children's Society of Canada, who supported Delphine Nicole's case. The MCSC's mandate is to help return missing children to a safe environment. They work with the media, law enforcement, and other professionals to bring attention and resources to missing child cases. And they provide affected families with knowledge and resources throughout the search and reunification process. You can visit them at mcsc.ca. And last but not least, another great organization that supports missing Indigenous persons is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA. They're a nonprofit organization whose number one mission is to bring the missing home, help families of the murdered cope, and support them through the process of grief. You can visit them at mmiwusa.org. Again, that's mmiwusa.org. Among the many resources we use for this episode, we found Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls by Jessica McDermott, incredibly helpful. Thank you for listening. Episodes of Disappearances release every Thursday. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, edited by Aaron Lan and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 